Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is my dad, Ted. Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky. Did you ever notice that we tend to fly into judgment mode when we are around younger people or older people? And we tend to look for opportunities to categorize them based upon how old they are or their generation or any of those different types of pieces like, oh, these millennials or that's so Gen X or hmm, typical boomer. Why does that happen? Well, we're about to find out because I read a book this year called A New Kind of Diversity, and the author Tim Elmore uh, was kind enough to give me an hour of time to sit down and talk about his text, because the new kind of diversity that he talks about is just the simple fact that we're diverse amongst our generations. Regardless of all the other things that we use to qualify each other, there is one thing that is always different, and that is ages. And how we respond and work with those different ages. And what I love about his text is he basically draws in the different ways in which you can close the generational gap by being empathetic. Tim and I hit it off pretty quickly here in this interview. And instead of listening to more of me talk about how much I loved it, I would ask you to take a couple of minutes here to listen to Tim describe all the different ways in which we can approach a diverse workforce by really focusing on the different ways to bridge the gap between generations. The book is A New Kind of Diversity, and my guest here is the author, Tim Elmore. Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky, and I am here today with author Tim Elmore, speaker, uh, someone who I've really come to rapidly admire with his new book, A New Kind of Diversity. And uh, as we're speaking, one of the things I'm going to ask you all to do who are listening is obviously buy the book, read the book, but then there's a a great assessment in the beginning uh, to take about basically your aptitude and understanding of all the different generations. So Tim, with that little intro, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Oh, Ted, it's great to be with you. We're going to have a fun conversation, I can tell. We sure are. So, Tim, uh, our podcast and and our leadership style here uh, is really based upon this simple precedent that, uh, or principle, that everyone is a leader and that a leader is anyone who has influence over another person. And your text really can help guide us in our influence over multi-generations, being empathetic in uh, navigating multiple generations, and, and most importantly, being able to serve people differently um, where they need to uh, be met. And the second principle of our podcast is based upon the Buffalo leadership principle, which is that, uh, as you may or may not know, that uh, buffaloes have this wonderful behavior of charging into the storms that they are facing uh, with optimism, empathy, and reflection. And today you're going to help us with optimism, empathy, and reflection. So <laughs> to get started, one of the things I wanted to know, Tim, is like, where did you grow up and, and, and where did you go to school and you know, what's, what's yeah. your background? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. So I was born in Indiana. I'm kind of a Midwest boy. Uh, and then when I was pretty young, we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and I have always been in public school, uh, but I had a couple of teachers that really were influential on where I am today. I'll never forget my fourth and fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Mayo. 
So when I moved up to fifth grade, she happened to move up to the school, ask her to teach fifth grade. And I thought, oh, this is awesome because I loved Mrs. Mayo. Um, That was back in the day, Ted, when teachers probably had a little bit more leeway to actually build a personal relationship with kids. I mean, appropriate, but I mean, she had me over to the house. I had Getty and watched Mary Tyler Moore. That could never happen today. But we were a smaller school, about 900 kids. And and anyway, um, I I just remember falling in love with learning under Mrs. Mayo. I did not want to disappoint her. It may be because I had a crush on her, but that's a whole nother podcast for another, another day. But Mrs. Mayo was huge. And then Mr. Mosher was a high school teacher that absolutely equipped me with life skills beyond the topic that he taught. So um, anyway, that's a little bit of my background. But while I was um, partway through high school, my family moved to San Diego, California. Oh, That was a cultural shock. Yeah, I bet. I went from a public school of 900 kids to a public school of over 4,000 hmm. kids. And, they, and it was all colors, shapes, and sizes. So, you know, you either thrived or you died. I, I thrived. It was so good for me to be exposed to various backgrounds and perspectives um, so, um, I think I fell in love with learning during my K-12 days. And, um, so fast forward, I became a teacher, uh, in, uh, 1979, but also a youth worker in a youth group at a church. So I was working with kids all the time. And so that's been over 40 years now. Um, still love students. I loved them even when I was a student, but I thought this is where I want to put my time and effort. This is, they're moldable when they're young. They're hungry when they're young. Sometimes we stop being curious when we're over 40 or 50 years old. So um, anyway, I have been all about investing in the next generation. One more little point that might be helpful for listeners. I had the undeserved privilege of going on staff with Dr. John C. Maxwell right after Mm -hmm. college. So for 20 years, I worked under John and um, felt like I didn't have to unlearn a lot of bad habits in leadership because he was just teaching leadership all the time, modeling leadership. So what I do now, lead growing leaders, it's all about, we partner with schools and it's all about leader development for the next generation. How do we better teach social emotional learning and leadership and how do we learn it ourselves as as faculty and principals? So anyway, that's probably too long of an answer, but that's why I'm doing what I'm what I'm doing today. That's a great answer. What what did you teach? Well, I taught history. So we we have that in oh, common. Wow. I know. And I fell in love with that subject with my sophomore um, uh, history teacher. He told stories and made World War II come alive. And, you know, when that happens, very likely the kids are going to be more enthralled by it rather than generals, dates, and battles. It was real people feeling real things. And so anyway, yeah. But I I think that's one of the pieces. and, And as we get into your book, that's so powerful is that when we are teaching and leading, regardless of it, it's, it's our influence, our ability to connect in those stories. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's when we get into your text here, what I love about, you know, looking at generations in the diverse lens of what they can bring to the table and being empathetic yeah. and your understanding. But what I want to share with you is that, you know, I, 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 w- I hope people really recognize that every moment of every day, they can change the direction of another person yeah. just through simple words, actions, and relevant connectedness. Um, I too am am the victim of uh, a great social studies teacher who <laughs> who you know John Tauscher and Joanne stayed these two legends in my life who did exactly what you said they were so smart and they were they made such neat connections and they had they had wicked senses of humor yeah, yeah. and 
and I don't, I, you moved around a lot, Tim, but one of, one of my blessings was, uh, I, I live in my hometown. I, I, where I went to high school, wow. I married a, a woman from where I went to high school. My children went to that high school. I am now the mayor of this city. Oh my, who says that? And very few people. <laughs> and, and it's kind of the Midwestern boy, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what the other piece is both of my children ran into great teachers at Port Washington High School where we live. And both of my children are going to college to be teachers. How and that? you ready? Both history teachers. Oh my goodness. So I, I think that end. that's, and I think what was powerful about it is they were inspired by um, men and women from multiple generations. They, yeah. they had a young history teacher who, uh, you know, would, would, would be a millennial and their two Gen Z kids. And then they had uh, Gen X teachers and a couple of boomers in there. But yeah. all of them made those great connections, seeing them either through the different lenses of empathy, understanding, or just relationships. I love it. Yeah. Cool. So I got. I, I just have to ask what it would be like to move from from Cincinnati to San Diego in the seventies. <laughs> well, first of all, I was living in Cincinnati during the big red machine days. Do you remember reading about oh, those? No, I was. I had all those baseball cards. Pete oh Rose, yeah, Johnny yeah. Bench. So, so I moved to San Diego. The Padres weren't quite as good, at least in the seventies. But um, here's the biggest thing I noticed. You know, it was a complete, you can imagine Midwest to California, completely different cultures. Right. Completely different climates. So I remember swimming on Christmas Day, the first December. <laughs> I was, And I called my buddies back. I'm in the pool right now. What are you doing? You know, so right. gloating over the great weather in San Diego. Yeah, we swim in on in Lake Michigan on New Year's Day, and that's called the polar plunge. But yes, that's exactly. That's only after a few Bloody Marys. So, <laughs> so Tim, can you uh, can you tell us about your new book and and how uh, where, where did it come from? What inspired you to do this research and, and write it? Yeah, well, I'm very heavily into social science uh, and have loved both psychology and sociology. Um, but I tell you what, we, we're all very aware that diversity is a huge topic today. We were more blended, more pluralistic than ever before. There's gender diversity, ethnic diversity, income diversity. But I spotted a diversity, and I'm sure others have as well, but we weren't, talk, or we weren't quite sure how to talk about it. And it's generational diversity. Um, a, a school might have five, maybe six generations on the campus if they're a mm -hmm. K-12 school, private K-12 mm -hmm. school. And you and I both know that while we're all human and there's certain elements that are the same in every human, we if we were raised in different times, we have different terms that we live upon and different language and customs and values. So I was finding that people on school campuses were getting frustrated instead of fascinated mm -hmm. with the generations. And that's my number one goal. When I go and speak at a school or a company or whatever, I want to give enough data and enough tips that I will help them turn their frustration into fascination. Uh, if you're a Gen Xer, you're going to be enthralled by Gen Z and what they bring. Now, are there some things they need to grow in? Of course there are. Back back in the day, there were things we needed to grow in. Right, right. So um, anyway, that's what really it's all about is how do we pull out the very best that every generation, including the students, can bring and teach us? Well, and one of the things that I think is so powerful is you know, and I've said this before in front of groups. It, my dad did not really like when I listened to Duran Duran. Yes. This, this garbage. And then 
His dad did not like when he listened to the Rolling Stones. Yes. And my my grandfather's father probably didn't really care for Gershwin. And his father <laughs> didn't probably care for those wild waltzes. It's true. And, yeah. and that, that's what's so cool about your book is yeah. that it, it asks you to just be like, look at mm-hmm. your gifts, contributions. And I like what you said, we, we, the, you know, the, the generations have opportunities for growth, Yeah. Which, which takes me to in your book. I love this idea of the gap and closing the generation gap um, that was kind of first noticed in the 60s. Tell, yeah. tell us about that. Well, John Poppy, the editor for Life Magazine, actually coined the term, the generation gap, back in the 60s when the baby boomers were the new kids on the block. Like right. you just, we were kids today. We start, we have been saying kids today ever since Socrates. It's hilarious how we think that next generation is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And then they become the adults. They do make it. Now, changes happen. But I think folks listening, I don't know how what your mindset is, but if you're a little bit I don't know, um, thinking kids today, I don't think they're going to make it. Just know there was a day people thought that about you as well. So early in the book, you remember, Ted, I talk about a couple of stories. I love the story of Tony because I think it illustrates this gap and how we need to close it. So true story, a few years back, Tony was a senior in college at Ohio University. He got a part-time job working at a major brand paint store. We would all know the name. And while he was in his senior year and he was working at this paint store, he got a TikTok account. Of course he did, okay? Mm -hmm. So he ends up shooting lots of TikTok videos, but part of the time he was shooting them after hours and posting them uh, from the paint store. Well, Tony's account went viral. By the time he had 1.8 million followers, 37 million views, Mm. he thought to himself, we could monetize this. You know, this could be used for marketing here. So young Tony put a little slide deck together and asked to meet with the executives of this paint store. But Tony did not get one person interested in him. Didn't get one set of eyeballs to look at his, uh, his slide deck. Tony did get something he didn't expect. He got fired. Hmm. Yep. The older folks there said, ah, oh, you know, kids today, they thought for sure he was stealing the paint. They right. thought or he was probably distracting the customers or, you know, doing this on company time. All the things we think when we're post 40, 45. So they let him go. Now get this. He leaves, graduates, moves down to Florida, now has over 2 million followers, and he started his own paint store. Now, there's probably lots to this story we don't understand. But here's one thing I think I do understand. Don't, they, don't you think they missed an opportunity? But they saw themselves as bosses and teachers, not learners. Mm-hmm. And, and and students. So um, I, I know there's lots to be said on both sides, but my hope is that we can take advantage of the fluid intelligence that the young people have. It's about innovation and curiosity and, and, and learning and the crystallized intelligence that the older generations have post 40. So one's under 40, one's over 40. Um, that brings, you know, I'm better at curating and analyzing and summarizing. Um, I just keep thinking businesses and schools could both use young and old instead of just getting mad at each other and gathering at the water cooler based on age groups and talking about kids today. Yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, no, but I, I love that because, and, and you illustrated so well in the book. What, one of the things I, I firmly believe is that we as leaders need to go where they are. Yes. Instead of yes. trying to draw them to us. And 
I'll give you two examples here, and then I have my next question for you. So just the other day, I was speaking in front of 800 high school students, and I started out by saying uh, the principal had introduced me and yada, yada, yada. And um, she said, and I want all phones put away, et cetera, et cetera. And I took the microphone. I said, hey, you can have your phones out if your Be Real account goes off, because I'd love to be on your Be Real and the place, I couldn't get them back for like four minutes because they were yeah. just astounded that this old 53-year-old guy yeah. Yeah. has a Be Real account. And I went there because that's where my children are. That's where the students that we serve are. Yeah. And I want to know what your thoughts are to this because, you know, when we're asking key questions to leaders about the generation gap, what are your thoughts on on being intentional about having a younger mentor? So, you know, I was, I graduated from high school in the late eighties, grew up in the seventies. Uh, and, and I, I think it's super important for leaders to maintain relevancy. Cause like your example with the paint store, yeah, right. They're, they're probably making judgments based upon how their kids are wasting so much time on TikTok, and they, yeah. they're not yeah. curious. Yeah. But the other, the, a couple of weeks ago, our communications person, Anne came up to me and she's like, do you mind if I modify your, um, uh, bitmoji? And I'm like, what's wrong with my Bitmoji? And she's like, can I just fix it? And all of a sudden, I, like it really looks like me instead of what I thought it was. Uh, so, yeah. so, so when you think of that, what are what are questions that leaders need to be asking to close the generation gap? You know, like my my method is, I want younger people around me to tell me, you know, where to go, and then get with them. What what are questions you believe they should be asking? Well, let me, if you don't mind, let me first start with what you're talking about. There's a term for it. The very last chapter of the book, I give a homework assignment and it's reverse mentoring. Yeah. So you do need to be intentional about the couple of older generations, Xers and boomers, and the couple of younger generations, millennials and Gen Zers, getting together on purpose, mm -hmm. so doing the work to get with someone that's unlike you, generationally anyway. And then the first thing you do is swap stories. You always find something in common with another person when you swap stories. You and I did in five minutes when we yep. could hear. But then, of course, the older can mentor the younger in some timeless principles that make life work and make work work. But then we switch hats. And as older people, we say, oh my gosh, I'm sure there's a truckload of things you can teach me. Um, one thing I don't uh, talk as much about in the book, but I hint at it, is the age of authority is dropping. It used to be back in the day, grandma and grandpa were the seasoned elders, you know, listen to grandma and grandpa. Well, now the young are going, I'm not sure. I love grandma and grandpa. I know more than they do about the future, right? Mm -hmm. So they teach me history, but I could teach them, you know, futurism or whatever. So I think that because the young brings some some new items to to work or to or to school, it would do educators very well to have to describe what you just described. Meet for lunch once a week or huddle up in an office or whatever and say, I've got some questions for you. You know what I've found when I do that? They intuitively have questions for me as well. Right. And they, yeah. So both become mentors. I think it's the way of the future. I really, really do. I, I think one of the things that that is a great tip just for anyone is to read the t-shirts. So when I was when I was a middle school principal, I you know kids would come in with T-shirts and they would have like Jimi Hendrix on them or Journey the band, and I'd yeah. look at them like, ugh, I I barely like those bands. But then I'd ask like, why do you have that on? Oh, my mom likes this, and I kind of grew up with it. And as you read the T-shirts, you'll see things and be able, like you said, to strike up those conversations. Yeah. I I think the world would do better if we, as the more seasoned 
uh, generations took more time just to listen to your point, because I think kids are starving to just be heard. No doubt. Do you mind if I offer a really quick? Uh, no, go. That. So um, because I am older, I'm actually a late baby boomer, not late bloomer, late boomer. Um, <laughs> I, I have uh, an, a little acronym that helps me approach uh, students. So you know how we've said for years and years and years that this is a leg you got to stand on, meaning mm -hmm. this is a foundation you can count on. Um, I take the letters A-L-E-G, and whenever I'm talking to a young team member at, on my team or a student at the local high school or college, I do a leg. So the letter A is ask instead of tell. Ask instead of tell. I want to tell them what went wrong. I want to tell them what the world is, you know. But if I ask genuine questions like, what were you thinking when you made that decision? That's really different. And I'm, I'm curious. When I ask questions, they feel valued. Mm -hmm. The letter L is listen well. It does very little good to ask questions if we're not willing to do the work of listening. And that you were just hinting at that. When we listen, they feel heard. And that is the crying uh, desire of Gen Z is to be heard. Mm -hmm. uh, the letter E is empathize. So when I empathize, they feel understood. By the way, one of my favorite quotes is from a psychologist named David Augsburger. Listen to this. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, it's indistinguishable. Hmm. Isn't that powerful? It is. It makes me want to say this is an appropriate way to love students is to just hear them out. So ask, they feel valued. Listen, they feel heard. Empathize, they feel understood. That now earns me the right to do the letter G, which is guide them. Will they need guidance? Of course they will. They're, they're about to do that wing nut, foul tip, bonehead thing you did back in the 60s and 70s. Absolutely. This earns our right to influence, not through a badge, but through but through relationship. And I I think they're crying out for relationship with you, but may not know how to how to do it. I, and I agree with you. And I think that's one of the pieces too, with like, you know, the closing gap that it, you do so eloquently in the book. Cause what I continue to see is I was in front of a, a rotary group a couple of weeks ago talking about how I, I, and I really believe this Tim. I believe generation Z is incredible. Yeah, I do. Too. I mean, what, what they have lived through in this, in this condensed period of time and, and what they care about and how they care. And obviously being the father of two of them, but when I was done, you know, I had these, I had, I had one World War II vet come up to me, 96 year old guy, very proud. He was 96. And he said, my great grandchildren are pretty awesome. My wow. grandchildren are not. And I was like, <laughs> but I went right to the curious part, you know, the, the inquiry, like, well, why, why is that? And he just went into millennials and it was really interesting because it was very judgment based and. And it's just, it just demonstrates your point that there are these, these constant gaps. And yeah. I love this, a leg. Oh my gosh. That's like a tattooable, uh, <laughs> that you could just keep that on the, on your wrist to remind yourself with frequency, be curious, kind, and then support. Don't start by talking. Yeah. I, and I, I am so horrible at that. Naturally. I want to teach. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I want to give my kids lectures and, and they, they, that didn't go over very well. So Anyway, I'm learning. By the way, there's another metaphor that might be helpful for your listeners. Um, the same, you know, if you and I were to hop on a jet plane and we flew across the world to China, let's say, when we hop off that plane, we would just intuitively know 
wow, we're going to have to work at connecting with people here mm -hmm. because they speak a different language. They have different customs. They, they have different values. Bingo. I think the same work we seem to be willing to put in in another country, we need to put in with these different generations. Gen Z speaks a different language. I don't know some of their words. They have different customs for sure, different values. But if I'll do the work, and I think, Ted, I don't want to judge folks, but I wonder, listeners, if you'll just evaluate yourself, am I willing to do that work? Or do I just get mad and th then there's now a wall instead of a bridge between us? Um, I, th I think we just need to say, I've got to do the work because the next gen, we owe them the tools that we got so they can go on and stand on our shoulders. And that's what I think is so powerful about the ask part of your leg is that you you have the opportunity to kind of close out the weird narratives you create in your mind when you're in strange places. Um, or, yes. or, or you know, I, I personally believe the only time people really get defensive is if they feel threatened, right? Yeah. That's the psychology yeah. behind that. And yeah. you're very threatened by youth because yeah. you're looking, you're looking at like what you were, or what you had, and you're thinking, oh, they're wasting this. And you've got the curse of knowledge from all of your scars. Yes. And, and yet you've got to let these young men and women live. Yeah, it's true. There's one insight I share in the book that might be fun to summarize real quick here to maybe convince listeners I need to do what Tim and Ted are talking about. Um, Margaret Mead was arguably the most famous anthropologist of the 20th century. Very quirky person, but she shared something 50 years ago before she passed away that was prophetic. She believes that humankind has gone through three major stages, okay, three major eras. Mm -hmm. The first one she called was the post-figurative era, post-figurative era. And that was thousands of years ago when if you were growing up, you learned everything post the adults. In other words, the, the older elders, you know, downloaded, this is the values of our culture and our tribe. This is the customs. And you just were to perpetuate the rituals of all past generations. Not a lot changed thousands of years ago. But then with the dawn of the Enlightenment and later the Industrial Revolution, we moved into what she called the co-figurative era. Now, because reason became king, uh, the young and old figured out life together. So Thomas Jefferson was very young when he worked on that Declaration of Independence, right? You know that. Right. As a, right. Um, what did we say when our country was born? We hold these truths to be self-evident. This is reasonable. We would have never said that 4,000 years before that time. You just followed the king and did what he said. So the co-figurative era, young and older figuring out life together. Here's the prophetic part of Margaret Mead's words. She said, I see that we are moving into the pre-figurative era mm. where the young will figure out things before the old do. And isn't that kind of what we're talking about, Ted? Oh my gosh. Well, this is anecdotal, but if something goes wrong with my iPhone, I don't hand it to my parents. I hand it to my son, you know? Right. And in five minutes, he's completely fixed it. And I go, how did you know to do that? And he says, how did you not know? You know, that, that's the conversation right. I have. Now, I'm being silly, but teachers, principals, I'm telling you, we're moving into a day where they're still going to need to learn the timeless virtues and principles that make life work. But they're going to give us the timely stuff we need to know. And I better come as a mentee, not just a mentor, when I'm in their presence. Oh my gosh, Tim, that is phenomenal because you, you, you're, you're dead on. I mean, there's no knowledge that the kids cannot access on their own and through their own interests. And I'll give you an example. I, I, so last year when the, or a year and a half ago, when the uh, war between Russia and Ukraine broke out, 
we were having breakfast and my daughter was a senior in high school and she came down and her eyes were all bloodshot. And I was like, Oh, Grace, did you not get a good night's sleep? She's like, well, I, I've been watching and, and streaming a lot of TikToks from uh, people my age in Ukraine who are down in the train stations underground and they're, they're learning school. And I was like, yeah. what? She's like, they're learning at school in bomb shelters and they're streaming it while they're doing it. Now, I, I mean, Walter Cronkite would have shown a 30 second clip of the hostages in Iran and I would have felt bad. And I saw the number up in the corner and we went to school, we might have talked about it. But the relevancy and access to information that Gen Z has, that we all have, but they know how to utilize, has to change how we approach learning as educators because now we are going to become, and I love the Mead piece, I, I think we're going to be, we're in the now, the post-knowledge era into the figurative, um, so not figurative, but the the literal support, the application of all of this stuff. Yeah. And we are now guiders instead of instructors. Well, not long ago, I talked to a senior in high school and he said to me, my teachers are obsolete. <laughs> That's pretty harsh, but he wasn't. Yeah, it is. He was saying everything they say, I can look up. So I don't think they need us for information. They need us for interpretation. Yes, an application. Yeah, an application. What do we do with all this? But we're a Sherpa guide now. We're, our roles are different. It's not dispensers of information. They can get that anywhere. We're now saying, let me help build a worldview in you that makes sense and that you can apply what you now know. That's wisdom, right? Um, but educators listening, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but just know the role that we have is different than it was when we were in school. And we've got to adapt, which means we got to do the work and build the muscles that are different than maybe the way we were trained to teach. Right. And we have to evolve with 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 the time period. That's yeah. That's a really interesting point, which is going to bring me to my next question. But one of the things I, I get to deal with as I support schools and school leaders is when you talk to teachers um, and principals and superintendents and just parents in general, they're they're making some judgments based upon their experience at the time. Yeah. So when I started teaching in the early 90s, I, I had the pleasure of teaching with a gentleman across the hall. So I was 25 and he was 60. Oh. So he was a World War II and Korea vet. Wow. And on my first day of teaching, he came up to me and he said, I'm very impressed that you're wearing a tie. And I said, well, yeah, I feel as a younger man, I need to wear a tie to, you know, just demonstrate blah, blah, blah. And uh, a couple of days later, he came up to me and he said, you know, I, I'm impressed by how you're managing your classroom. I hear I hear people engaged in laughter, but, you know, I don't smile till Thanksgiving. And oh. I was like, what? He goes, I don't smile until Thanksgiving. And I miss the old days of cheese grating. And I was like, what is cheese grating? He goes, well, I used to command classrooms. And when I started teaching in the 50s, I'd take the biggest kid, he'd look at me and I'd take the biggest kid in the class, I'd walk him out in the hallway and I'd pick him up and I'd run his back along the vent on the locker. Oh my and God. I was, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, no, that's not what I do. But, but he thought yeah. the good old days were gone. Yeah. Yeah. Now I hear people my age who are 30 years in, 35 years into their career saying, oh, I miss when we used to be able to. And I just think it's one of those pieces where we get stuck in a narrative of romance from when we were younger, and then we're judging against it. Yeah, no doubt. We 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 have reconstructed memories. I mean, science proves that. So we look back at the good old days, and they weren't as good as we thought they were. We were right. a little bit bad and not good. 
I, I think you're absolutely right. So uh, we work with a number, uh, Growing Leaders worked with a number of professional baseball, football, basketball teams. Uh, I remember talking to a minor league pitcher who said, I think my manager forgets how hard it is to play baseball. And he mm -hmm. wasn't being disrespectful, but that manager now, you know, he's got all the answers because he's sitting in a dugout mm -hmm. that's chewing tobacco. And this young player is trying to play this very difficult game. So uh, all I would say, it really is to echo, Ted, what you've just said. Listeners, let's remember it wasn't always the way we think it was. And there was a day people did not think you were going to make it. Maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just begin, we need to begin with belief. We did a survey partnering up with Harris Poll Interactive of over 2,000 adults. And we asked these adults what their feeling was when they thought of kids, what their thoughts were when they thought of kids. Hmm. Two out of three thought a negative emotion or felt a negative emotion, not a positive one when they thought of kids. I'm afraid for them. I'm concerned for them. And even though that can be okay and explainable, can you imagine what it feels like to be a kid? And you look up at the adult and they go, I'm really concerned for you. And then get this, almost two out of three, 65% said these kids are not going to be ready for adult life when it's time. Well, two things I'd say. Number one, look in the mirror. What are you not doing to get them ready? It's your job, buddy. Oh, correct. Who can you imagine what it feels like to be led by a grown-up parent, teacher, coach that's looking at you and in their face, they're screaming, you are not going to be ready. So I am waving a flag everywhere I go. Begin with belief. Begin with expectation. Mm -hmm. Begin begin with expectation. Kids perform better under a teacher with high expectations. So uh, now I'm preaching a sermon. I'm sorry, but I, I so believe what you just said. We've got to begin with belief. Even if we're saying, I got I to gotta conjure this up a little bit. I got to see some good in them and practice the 101% principle. Find the 1% you can affirm and affirm it to, to death, you know, right there. So. Right, right. Well, but I, what, I, what I think is important is the reflective nature of us as the generations in the lead in life, you know, a few years older. And that is the fact that we've created all the conditions for that generation behind right. us. So That's when you get mad that the kids never get off their phones, well, who yep. gave them to them? When That's you get upset that the kids are vaping, which generation invented that? Mm -hmm. We did. And now yeah. we're upset that they're using these things. And yeah. I I do parenting classes, Tim. And one of the things that we talk about is, you know, and I love I get this feedback of, I, I just like Ted's old-fashioned strategies. No, yeah. they're timeless strategies. Yes, that's when right. you take your children to dinner, you should talk to them. You mm -hmm. shouldn't take your three-year-old, put headphones on them, and give them an iPad and let them watch Bluey. So yeah. you and your partner can do whatever you want to do. You should be engaging. These are all teachable moments. Yeah, no doubt about it. My dad, he died at 90 just a few years back, but he always said the trouble with America today is we're not having dinner together anymore. Uh -huh. um, and and I would add, or if we are, we're, we're all looking at our portable device. Right. So absolutely right. Let's re-engage in the timeless uh action of 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 face to face. Um here's a little thought that I don't think I put in the book, but I so believe um, the reason the generation gap has gotten wider, I believe, since the 60s, mm -hmm. it, the screens in our life have gone from public to private. Mm -hmm. So back when I was a kid, we had one screen in our house. It was a television. In fact, in my house, it was a black and white TV. But we all gathered around together, watched I Love Lucy or Dick Van Dyke or Andy Griffith. We laughed together, talked about it together. We were together. Fast forward to today, we've all got that private portable device right 
may be on platforms that my mom and dad have no. My mom and dad may know if I'm 17 that I have an Instagram account. They have no idea I have five Finsta accounts. Right. Fake it. You know, where I'm developing personas and coming across as someone I am not and talking to Lord knows who. Well, they have no idea. So we've got to work because this is a reality today. We don't need to wish it away, but we need to create spaces like you just said. I'm face to face with mom and dad or my teacher, and we are really engaging in building the emotional intelligence we're going to need for our careers. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, getting into the parent lane here a little bit. When, when I work with parents, I put um, uh, immediate feedback forms up on the walls, consensograms, and I give them dots. And I put up there, like, how many days a week does your family eat together at your dinner table? And then, yeah. you know, Monday through Sunday. And then I will also do how many nights a week does your family have commitments outside of the home? And it it's, it's not surprising because we all believe our kids are going to Harvard and going to be D1 athletes. And one of the things that is the big epiphany then is the sec- the third question I write up there, which is how many books a month do you read as an adult? Because we have a, a crisis in literacy in the United States. Yes, we do. And I don't know if there's research that exists that correlates it between devices and, and books. But yeah. I, I usually bring the parents around to a little tingling of guilt because it's like, hey, you, you're going to get what you model. Yeah, it's true. And we know that from teaching. And the second thing I always wish I could find, Tim, is a cartoon. Maybe I'll just have an artist do this for me. I always want to do, uh, if if you had all of the technology that you have in your pocket in 1975, what would that look like? And that would be a school desk with a TV on it, a record player on it, and a phone. Right? As the well- lead yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, because people get all upset about kids using their phones in their classrooms or they can't understand it. But then at the same time, behind them would be the world's library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's just a context piece. It's but, so, so true. So, Tim, with that, like, where do you see the most tension or discord between generations? And, and what are you hearing about, like, in the workplace? And where, where do generations kind of clash just naturally? Yeah. A couple of things. Um, one, the data that I have curated and that we've done uh, as primary research tells me that we have often, not all the time, but often failed in building career readiness, you know, the CTE stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, employers will tell me, oh boy, they got a 4.0 in reading, writing, arithmetic, but they may not be ready to look a, a, a hiring manager in the eye, shake their hand, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I feel like there is a gap and and that strikes a narrative in our heads then. So now we think they're all a mess. No, no, they just didn't learn some of those interpersonal skills. Now we need to build them. And we should have done that in school. Sometimes the classroom doesn't prepare them for the workroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all the time, but but much of the time. In fact, employers will so often say, I know that kid was smart at 22, but they were so not ready. I just talked to one hiring manager that said, he did an interview with a 22-year-old recent grad, and this young grad said, I'm going to have your job in 18 months. <laughs> so probably not a good thing to say to the person hiring you. But see, I think she felt like that came across as confidence. It actually came across as arrogance. And Correct. that good to have a little coaching and say, sweetie, I know you're smart. What you need to be is humble, <laughs> you know, and, and and share what you've done and, and let him make that com- you know, that 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 comment. You're going to have my job in fit. So, um, so I would say that would be one of the gaps that I think we need to make up. I don't think it's their fault. I think it's more our fault. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but then I would also say there's a gap from our side as well. And we've already touched on this. We so see ourselves as the one with the answers mm -hmm. and we will now teach them or lecture them or whatever. And I'm just telling you, that's just not working. Um, they're not looking for a sage on the stage with a lecture. I do think they're looking for a guide on the side with an experience. Mm -hmm. Most of my teaching now, I, I do love to teach, but it's not just verbal instruction. It's we have an experience together. Um, well, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, I, I hope this is quick. I will try to make it quick. Uh, when both of our kids were young, I saw this gap widening and widening. And so um, we created a rite of passage for both of our kids when they were 13 years old, something that would help them move from childhood to adulthood. But I did a trip with each of my kids, daddy-daughter and then daddy-son. I want to tell you very quickly about my daddy-son trip. So um, I told my son, you can pick anywhere you want to go, anywhere in the world, and we'll go. And it dawned me when I said that, oh, my gosh, what have I just said? You know, he right. Rio or Paris or whatever. Ted, you'll love this. He picked Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> now, the reason he did, I asked why, but I thought, boy, this is cheaper than Tokyo. But the reason he did is he said, well, the Mall of America is there and Camp Snoopy, the roller coaster was there. Mm -hmm. And then there was, he was a thespian. So that was, there was a show there that he knew the director and he wanted to see it. So we went up first three days of our trip was just hilarious. We had pillow fights and ate junk food and rode roller coasters. We had a blast. But the fourth day was going to be a day of, of learning. But here's what I did. Um, we took our rental car out to one of the 10,000 lakes up, up there in Minnesota. And, uh, I found a little parking lot. We were alone in the car. And when I stopped the car, I said, Jonathan, I want to do something different. He said, what dad? I said, I want to trade places with you. What do you oh. mean? I'm going to get out of the car and I'm going to go over to the passenger side. You're going to get out of the car and come to the driver's side and you're going to drive this car. Well, mm -hmm. he. He said, dad, that is illegal. That is illegal. That is illegal. Because so I think he was, I think he was 12 years old at the time. Yeah. Jonathan, we're not going to go out on the main roads. We're just going to drive in here. But I want you to handle this multiple ton machine. Mm -hmm. See if you can do it. Next thing he said, you'll love it. He goes, mom will not like this, dad. Mom will not like this. <laughs> Jonathan, does mom need to know? No, she doesn't. Yeah. Boys so with the boys. That's right. Just for the boys. So anyway, I took a few minutes. And by the way, I think kids learn just in time, not just in case. This was a just, I explained the accelerator and the brake and the gear shift and the steering wheel and the ignition. He, after 10 minutes, he finally got up the courage to turn the car on. And you know that feeling you get as a boy when your car's on. Ooh, this is awesome, you know. Right. He starts backing the car up. Ted, I'm telling you, within one minute, he's doing everything he's seen me do. You know, I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's you know, backing the car up. Yeah, and I'm going to park it. Yeah, doing the whole thing. So after 15 minutes of driving and he's loving it, I say, all right, stop the car. We went back to our original spots in the car. And I said, Jonathan, this is going to sound cheesy, but just go with me on this. How did you feel when you first got behind the wheel of this car? Well, he was honest. He said, dad, I panicked. I didn't think I could do it. I said, what'd you just show me? He was quiet and he said, I guess I showed you I could do it. Mm -hmm. I said, Jonathan, that's exactly what you showed me. And that's exactly how you're going to feel becoming a man. You're going to feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. Uh, and that broke us into a marvelous conversation about the future and how he was going to feel as he grew into his teenage years and his view of girls would be changing. His view of his parents would be changing. Mm -hmm. his, 
life would be changing. But um, it was a marvelous platform because we had an experience. I don't think I can drive a car. Oh, I can drive a car. Right. So, and by the way, after that, what we did, we drove over, I drove over to a little graveyard five minutes away. And I said, this is going to sound weird, feel weird, but I want you and I to walk around this graveyard in silence and just read the tombstones. Let's mm. read what was said about these people. And we sat down and talked. And I'm telling you, I had the greatest conversation I've ever had with a 12-year-old boy or girl about what would be on his tombstone. Because he found some people lived a short time. Some people lived a long time. Some people had really nice things said about them. Mm -hmm. Not so much. But my point is, I don't think I'm a brilliant dad. But those experiences were indelibly etched in his head. Teachers create environments and experiences from which you can talk. Bombs and dads create environments from which that that little ride over the graveyard was free of charge. But boy, was it a better environment to have a talk about what do you want to be remembered for mm -hmm. rather than in a lecture hall. Well, I'm going to talk to you now about your life purpose here. So right. Right. Uh, I'll stop there. But I'm such a believer. That's how Gen Z needs to learn. They got a screen. They can learn information. We need to give them experience. How did you um, apply this metaphor now throughout your son's entire life? Well, first of all, we refer back to it often. He's 31 now. Wow. So many years. Yeah. Um, but we've talked about it. In fact, we were together at Christmas. Just had another time. Remember that? Remember that trip? Oh, my gosh. I remember that trip, you know. Yeah. But married now. He's in a house. And he goes, Dad, there's so many times. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Right. You know, buying life insurance. And uh, we just talk about about that trip. And you never think you can do it. Yeah. Do it. And um, it's just, it's so powerful to have that metaphor. And I love that. I love the, the walking through the cemetery piece of, of kind of what this is. And yeah. Tim, I don't know if, I don't know if we're aligned. Uh, our souls are aligned. I did the same thing. Wow. How I took both my kids on a trip between eighth grade and high school. Yep. yep. And uh, I've talked about it on the podcast a few times and uh, both kids got to pick where they wanted to go. Both kids picked outdoor camping trips, mountains, and yeah. I learned, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip this for a second. I learned more from my kids on those trips about leadership and like, you know, because I'm I'm six feet tall, I'm pretty athletic, you know. I, I just I zip up a mountain, and I turn around, and I'd be like, where, where the heck are my kids? Uh, and what I learned is that with generational pieces, especially with children, we need to go at their pace. Yes. And and that's where generations need to slow down a bit. Uh, when you're, like I said, the leaders in the time period. Yeah, no doubt about it. In fact, when we get ahead of them, sometimes we gaslight and they feel so foolish. We need to slow down to their pace or speed up to their pace. Yeah. And let's walk, let's walk this thing together. Yeah. But great. I also think what's empower, empowering is, you know, your voice is cracking and that, that, that was a, that was a core memory for you and him. Yeah, and, was. and I think, you know, the listeners, if you read Tim's book, like that's, that's what he talks about is that these generational opportunities to close the gap. Yeah. And, and for you, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm a process nerd. So like that was a process that was intentional. That was not accidental. And that's the work we have to put in, uh, in workplace and life for these just diverse generations because they're amazing. Yeah. It's so, so true. Yeah. And they're going to stand on our shoulders and one day we'll be in a nursing home and they're either going to be ready to take care of us or not ready to be taken right. care of us. <laughs> right. 
Well, and I think one of the things that's fun, and and that's what your book sparked for me, was I I created a process tool for faculties, um, any group really, to do interviews. And they interview each other, like, what's your full name? Where did you go to school? Uh, You know, how would you have been described when you were in high school? What was your first car? And all these things. And what's fun about that is, you know, I don't know, Tim, what your first car was, but mine was a 1982 Ford Escort station wagon with a manual transmission and like, you know, a flat tire. And as soon as people start talking about this, they start looking across, like, even if they're different ages, like, that's the car my dad had. He bought that new. And you're like, oh, your dad must be 100, right? But there's just all these connections. And that's that's the beautiful thing about your book. So what, one more question for you. What? How can we avoid stereotyping generationally? Yeah. I believe stereotypes or stereotyping is mental shortcuts. Oh. And leaders and educators, we don't like them taking shortcuts. You, we don't like to be stereotyped. So when we take mental shortcuts, we don't want to do the work to really get to know them. Um, one phrase I think I did put in the book is context, context explains conduct. Mm-hmm. But once I learn the context, oh, of course that explains your behavior. I may not like it, but it does explain it. So um, I believe we've got to not take the shortcut, but really take the time to do ask, listen, empathize, and guide, you know, like we talked about earlier, a leg, um, and then do the work. And then maybe this is the obvious, and please forgive me if this sounds like a sales pitch, but I do want to encourage your listeners, if you can't pick up the book, I designed it to be an encyclopedia on each of the five generations that are still working mm-hmm. today. So you see a little back history, a little backstory. Oh my gosh, of course the builders, of course the boomer, of course the Xers, um, because people develop like wet cement. We're very pl- soft and plastic in the beginning with our neural pathways. We harden, we do harden as we get older. And now it's harder to change. So um, learn the wet cement of each generation and at least come with a greater sense of understanding and empathy for each one. And then let's pull out the best. I need the best in all the other four generations that I'm working with in our office. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of my favorite pieces in your book is right yeah. in the beginning on page 38 uh, and 39, you've got a reference guide yeah. that goes through the generations and how they view their life, technology, the market, ethic, uh, ethics, authority, role of work. And you just yeah. read it from left to right. And it's like, yeah. Absolutely. For yeah. you know, just as an example, to quote you to you, which always feels cool. Um, <laughs> when you go through like technology, yeah, uh, the silent generation born twenty, uh, you know, the twenty nine to forty five, they hope they outlive it. The boomers hope to master it. The Gen Xers hope to employ it. The millennials hope to enjoy it, and the Gen Z kids hope to hack it. Yeah, that's right. Good for you, because that's. I think one of the things that is. For me, the, one of the things in the workplace that I find is as I start to work with people in their you know late 50s, 60s, they are almost um, unfiltered, candid. Yeah, yeah. And, and then other people are highly filtered, worried about narratives in their head. And there's this, just this clash yeah. that, that occurs when somebody says, well, that's a dumb idea. And they're, they're older and you're like, well, you don't care about me and you don't. No, it's a dumb idea. To yeah. you, your strategy of a leg, ask yeah. where that idea came from, listen to the root of it, then empathize, and then guide. Yeah, absolutely. And when I do that work, it's almost just like the um, human, the 
the social contract we have with other humans. When I do that, it's almost always, almost always reciprocated. Um, Cam is 40 years younger than me on our team. When I, when we meet, we're practicing reverse mentoring. He, I, I, I start, oh, Cam, I got some questions for you. And he's so honored that this author of, you know, all these books or whatever is asking him questions. But then I notice he starts asking me questions. He's mm-hmm. smart. Oh, I could probably learn from you. This is how life was supposed to be done, I think. And we're not perfect on our team for sure. We're flawed. But um, I, I just think we need to we need to stop this nonsense of stereotyping and do the work to know that context explains conduct. Mm-hmm. We do, oh, we got a better school, we got a better company, we got a better nonprofit uh, in the in the process. Well, we're a little bit over our time, and I am so grateful for how gracious you've been with your time because I, you know, starting out with Miss Mayo and Mr. Mosher, your teachers, and then you taught us so much today. And it's not a sales pitch. Tim, your book is fantastic because it is directly relevant and applicable immediately, no matter what you do in life. If you're a grandparent, if you are 24 years old, if you're 19 years old, the, the ability for us to empathize and advocate for each other instead of criticize each other is what's super clear about your book. And I'm just really grateful that you brought your talents you know, to us and that you gave me some time today. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat. Thanks for volleying back and forth with me. So let's do some smart thinking. Describe a way in which you can approach generational differences in new ways. List people who would benefit from reading this book or listening to this podcast. And list a few things that you are now going to do differently as a result of your learning from Tim Elmore. That's it. That's the Smart Thinking Podcast. Hey, as always, thank you for listening and please make sure to share this episode with other people who work in a diverse workforce with multi-generations there, as well as parents and teachers who would benefit from hearing the different ways of approaching the generational differences in our lives. Now, as we close out here, one of my favorite parts of this entire conversation with Tim was just of the different ways in which we need to reflect and be empathetic to close the gaps between the different generations in which we live amongst and that we serve. And finally, if you would like any more information or to learn more about Tim Elmore, please visit his websites at timelmore.com or growingleaders.com. I have a small feeling that if you work with us here at CESA 6, you're going to be meeting Tim Elmore in the near future. All right, I'm going to close out here with one of my favorite covers by the Wellpennies. Everybody wants to rule the world.
Thank you.